it's just over six weeks since the start of the new year. And that was a time for many to make New Year's resolutions. People see the new year as a blank slate and an opportunity to change things in their life that they feel unhappy with, whether it's to get fit, spend more time with the family, or merely just to give up chocolate. But a study in 2017 by students and academics from the School of Psychology at the University of Plymouth showed that only 9.2% of people felt they succeeded in achieving their goal. In fact, a third of resolutions had already failed by the middle of January. Now, whether we go in for making New Year's resolutions or not, all of us at one time or another make promises. Some may be trifling and others substantial. By their very nature, promises concern the future and as such can run the risk of being deeply affected by unforeseen circumstances outside the control of the one making the promise. In some cases, promises depend for their fulfillment on the keeping of conditions by the giver or the intended beneficiary. A promise may take the form of an assurance of continuing or future action on behalf of someone. It may be a solemn agreement of lasting mutual relationships, as in covenants, or it may be the announcement of a future event. Sometimes, of course, promises are made with very little likelihood of them being kept. We tend to view the promises made by politicians at the time of elections with cynicism and take everything they say with a large pinch of salt. For experience shows us that political leaders can always plead that new circumstances have made it impossible or highly disadvantageous to keep that to their manifestos. And so we see that man has undermined the value of any promises he cares to make and regards it as permissible or at least expedient to break his word should circumstances seem to merit it or even should the one who made the promise merely feel like it. But what about God's promises? Does God always keep his promises? What kind of promises are they? And how do they concern us? And are they dependent on man as well as on God or on God alone for their fulfillment? Well, tonight, hopefully, I want to be able to show that God's promises spring from his inherent goodness and not out of any obligation or indebtedness to man. That these promises are mighty and they are sure. That the basic content of the promises are dependent on nothing but God's faithfulness 
for its full film. And having established the reliability of God's word, that promises made by God, which so far have not been fulfilled, will be fulfilled. Now, when we come to the Bible, we find that when God makes a promise, he does it not by looking into an unknown future, as man is obliged to do, but sees the end from the beginning. God challenges us with this very fact by declaring his ability to speak of the future as we speak of the present. And we can see this in the prophecy of Isaiah. For in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 21, we read, Shall ye in a bring them near? Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Saviour. There is none beside me. Now when we go into the next chapter, chapter 46, we see God in verse 10 declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times of things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Now, these declarations of God can be tested against the prophecies that he has made when we see their fulfillment at the appropriate time, in the manner and completely in according to what was foretold. God's promises are prophecy of a particular kind. It's our belief that they will be fulfilled as surely as every prophecy of God has been realized at its proper time. So it's necessary that we have a correct understanding of these promises because firstly they affect our attitude to the Old Testament. Secondly, our belief about life after death. Thirdly, our understanding about the place and timing of reward for faithful people. Our appreciation of the future role of Jesus Christ. And lastly, our understanding of God's ultimate plan for this earth. So understanding and believing, having confidence in God's promises, has a profound and positive effect upon the whole structure of our, our religious faith and our basis for living. And the reason we can have confidence in God's promises is that so many of them have already been fulfilled. The details of Christ's birth, death and resurrection were accurately predicted in the Old Testament. And therefore, Jesus Christ is the focus of God's promises. In Acts chapter 13, Paul tells his Jewish audience that we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto our, the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm. 
thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And in Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul confirms that these promises are for the benefit of the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And he says, now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, for this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles, and sing unto thy name. These promises provide us with the key to the future because they present us with a plan that God has been following from the beginning. God's intention for mankind is set out for us in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 when he states that man should have dominion over the earth. However, whether man should attain his divinely appointed destiny was dependent upon his obedience to God's law. And we see that when Adam and Eve followed what God taught, everything went well. But in Genesis chapter 3, we have the record of the serpent tempting Eve and how Adam likewise partook of the forbidden fruit when it was offered to him by Eve. And as a result of this, God put into effect his law. Death became the punishment for sin, and this involved Adam and Eve, and, and subsequently all their descendants. The Apostle Paul sums up how Adam's sin affected mankind at large, when he wrote again in his epistle to the Romans, in chapter 5, verse 12, stating that wherefore as by one man sin entered the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And then we go on to read in Genesis 3 that God punished the serpent by cursing him above every other animal. The serpent was to spend his days upon his belly, groveling in the dust of the earth. But something further was added, and it's this that constitutes God's first great promise or covenant with mankind. For in Genesis 3 verse 15, we read that, And I, God, will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The important points of this promise in Eden are firstly that two parties in, are involved, namely the serpent and his seed, and the woman and her seed. Secondly, we see that the way there will be enmity between them. Enmity being meaning strife, contention, hostility, and war. So here we are seeing that they represent op op opposites in a conflict. 
And finally, we see that the conflict will finally be resolved. For we see that the serpent seed is bruised in the head, a fatal and permanent wound. However, while this is taking place, the woman's seed receives a temporary wound by being bruised in the heel. To understand what this promise meant, we need to consider the context. Adam and Eve had just sinned. They were now dying creatures. And knowing what it was to disobey God, they were no longer innocent because they knew both good and evil. For them, there seemed to be no way out of this situation, except that God had given them this promise, that one would come who would destroy the result of the serpent's lie. One who was to be bitten as a result of the serpent's lie. One who has to be mortal. One who would rise above this to, to crush and destroy the serpent forever. This was a promise from Almighty God that Adam and Eve could hope and trust in. We see that the serpent here represents the source of sin, that is, our human nature because he expressed the thinking of the flesh by uttering false teaching opposed to that of God. So we see that the seed of the serpent are those who display the characteristics of the serpent by speaking and acting after the flesh. The woman, however, represents the truth of God's word in that Eve initially spoke this when she said unto the serpent in Genesis chapter 3 verse 2, that we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, ye shall not eat, not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. But when we consider the term seed of the woman, these have to be the opposite to the seed of the serpent. There are a class of people who are trying to walk in God's ways. In its ultimate sense, the seed of the woman is the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the only one who fulfills all the requirements. For the struggle between Christ and sin was the most important conflict of all time. Although Jesus had human nature, he never once yielded to sin. He gained the victory over the result of the serpent's life by subduing his own natural human desires and instead obeyed God, not only in his life, but also in his death. God, Christ had to suffer death himself that is, to be bruised in the heel by the serpent, because he had human nature. But this was not to be a fatal blow, because Christ 
was raised from the dead after three days in the grave and given immortality. And this victory came about because Christ gave a fatal blow to sin by bruising the head of the serpent. The serpent thinking was crushed. But his conflict was not just with the seed of the serpent. Those Jews and Gentiles of his day who conspired against him. It was with the serpent itself, the origin of evil works, in order that in due course, those who are trying to walk in God's way could be released from the bondage of sin and death. Through this victory of Jesus Christ and the hope that it brings to all that put their faith in it, the whole world will be cleansed from sin and death. As we see in Paul's letter to the first letter of the Corinthians, chapter 15, when he says that the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject to him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. And this will be achieved when Jesus returns to set up God's kingdom on earth and gives eternal life to those who are judged to have tried to walk in God's ways. But during his millennial reign on earth, they will work with him to eliminate sin. And at the end of his reign, sin will have been completely destroyed and there will be no more death. Then God's promise will be fulfilled and the victory over the seed of the serpent will be complete. Now the good news, that is the gospel which Jesus preached, was all about this kingdom age. And Paul, in his letter to the Romans, chapter 1, verse 16, states that he was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. This gospel then is for all mankind. But as Paul has said, it was made to the Jew first. And we can see this from our introductory reading from Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 3 and verse 8. And he says that the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. And in this verse, Paul is referring back to the promises that God made to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. And he puts God's promises in true perspective, because he shows that they are at the heart of the gospel of Christ. In Genesis 12, we read of a man named Abraham who was chosen by God because of his faithfulness. 
and told by God to remove himself and his family from their idolatrous surroundings in Ur of the Chaldeans to a new land that God would show him. In verse 1 we read, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. Then we find in verse 2, God making these promises. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So when we look at these promises, we see that they constitute the following elements. Firstly, that Abraham was promised that he would become a great nation and that his name would be great. Secondly, that God would bless those who blessed Abraham and curse those who cursed him. Thirdly, that God promised that in Abraham all families of the earth would be blessed. Now at this point, if you would open your Bibles please and turn to Genesis chapter 17. In this chapter, we find that these promises are being restated in verse 1. When Abraham was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said unto him, I am the almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. Abraham fell on his face and God talked with him, saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt bear, shalt be a father of many nations. And continuing at verse 6, and I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And here we find God's promises being termed as a covenant, which implies a binding contract between two partners. The word occurs 11 times in this chapter, and it's qualified in two important ways. Well, God says it's my covenant, and it's an everlasting covenant. Verse 8 provides us with the nucleus of the promise, a promised inheritance. For Abraham, as it should have been for Israel, this promised inheritance was much more than owning real estate. The land was to be the basis upon which God would build a new city. In verse 6, we read that kings shall come out of thee, which provides a clear indication of the kingdom which would be established later in the promised land. And associated with the everlasting covenant is the promise to Abraham's seed that the Lord 
will be there gone. And at first we may think this to be an unremarkable statement, but it is a most profound promise. In Leviticus chapter 26, it's quoted to describe the unique fellowship that Israel were to enjoy with God. When he says, I will walk among you and will be your God and ye shall be my people. Now, when we go over to Genesis chapter 22, we find recorded the occasion when God asked Abraham to take his son Isaac to an appointed place and offer him for a sacrifice. Now, we can only imagine the feelings of Abraham. Isaac was precious to him. For all the promises that God had made up till now seemed to be centered on this child because in the previous chapter, chapter 21, we read that God told Abraham that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. So what would become of God's promises? Well, chapter 22 then continues by telling us what Abraham did and thought. Well, we read that Abraham goes on to do what God asks knowing for certain that he would come back with his son alive. And the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 17 states, By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, That in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in figure. So here we are seeing that God was proving Abraham to the limit. It wasn't God's wish for Isaac to die. We know this by the fact that Isaac did not die. But God did want Abraham's mature and full faith made evident by his willingness to give Isaac back to God. It's then in Genesis chapter 22 that we're provided with the final promise that God makes to Abraham. In verse 16 we read, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying, I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. So here we see that amongst Abraham's numerous and blessed seed, there would be one particular seed one particular person. And we can deduce this from verse, the words of verse 17. Thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Abraham believed in that first promise of God made in the Garden of Eden, which we looked at earlier. He recognized the similarities between what was said to him and what lay in that first promise. He recognized that it would be his seed 
that would conquer the enemy, the enemy of sin. So what is the relevance of the promises made to have Abraham for you and for me? Well, the reference to the in the promise to the seed being one person and not a, to a multitude is made clear again by the Apostle Paul in our introductory reading from Galatians chapter 3. For in verse 16, Paul says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He said not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. This shows the importance and meaning of the promises to Abraham. For Jesus Christ is the promised seed. The land of Israel was promised to Abraham and therefore to his seed, Jesus Christ. The question is, how then can we share in them? Well, the answer is given to us in verse 26. When we read, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. And there is an important conclusion from this. For when we see Christ in the promise, we're not seeing it in hindsight. At the time they were made, Christ was the intended subject. In that first occurrence of the promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, we see that the inheritance of the land in the first instance is to the seed, that is the Lord Jesus and not to Abraham. We know that Abraham was keenly aware of this, for Jesus tells us that Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Also, Abraham was able to understand that resurrection from the dead is an underlying doctrine of the promises, without which their fulfilment would be impossible. In offering his only begotten son Isaac, Abraham believed that God would raise him from the dead. He perceived that deliverance would come because God would provide himself a lamb. Here we have a vivid demonstration that Isaac's death could not take away sin, and therefore at the last moment Isaac was spared. Through the pain of his experience, Abraham had the complete picture. Inheritance would come through salvation by faith, and salvation would come through a redemptive sacrifice by someone greater than Isaac. Someone provided by God himself. There would be another only begotten son who would be offered. God would not spare his only begotten son, but would give him up for us all. So then, 
having seen that the seed and the promises to Abraham refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. What then of the position of the natural descendants of Abraham through the line of Isaac and Jacob? Does the qualification of faith, rather than being Jewish, remove any special place of the Jew in the purpose of God? Well, the answer to that question is certainly no. As we have seen, God has made it clear that the promises would be fulfilled through a single person who would be descendant of Isaac and Jacob, and this in itself guarantees a unique place for the children of Israel. For Israel is the nation of God, chosen to reveal his plan for mankind because of their relationship to Abraham, his friend. And as such, his dealings with them were upon the same basis. Even though the history of the nation of Israel shows that they have been unfaithful, they are still God's people. God will not cast them away. And we see that Israel as a nation is a living witness to God's mercy and loving kindness. And God has stated that he will remember his covenant with them. And Israel will enter into that covenant when the Lord Jesus returns to earth to set up God's kingdom, and they accept him as the promised seed of Abraham. And, as, and the Apostle Paul, being part of Abraham's seed, looked forward to that day when he would inherit the land of Canaan forever. And this is evident from the declaration, his declaration before King Agrippa, recorded in Acts 26. And he says, now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? And as we have seen, the hopes of Abraham concentrated on the future. He waited for the land of promise as an everlasting possession and a kingdom that would be ruled by his seed. And we've seen that Jesus Christ is the promised seed through whom the blessings will be fulfilled. The question now is, how can we as Gentiles inherit and share these promises. Well, we as Christadelphians believe that anyone who hears the call of the gospel and responds by baptism into Christ can become part of the body of Christ and thereby inherit the promises. From our reading in Galatians chapter 3, faith was the one great quantity, quality that God commanded Abraham and it is faith and obedience which are the characteristics which link Abraham with his true spiritual children. For those of faith are to be blessed with faithful Abraham. The blessing refers to justification 
or forgiveness of sins for all those who are baptized into Abraham's seed, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who are justified in this way will inherit the hope of the promises, which is eternal life in the kingdom of God. Paul, in writing to the Romans chapter 4, tells us, for the promise that he should be heir of the world was not to Abraham or his, to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For they which are of the law be heir. For if they that which are of the law be heir, faith is made for them, and the promise is made of none effect. He then continues in verse 16. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. To fulfill the promise made by God, it is evident that resurrection is an underlying doctrine, without which their fulfillment would be impossible. The promise of an eternal inheritance for mortal man cannot be achieved without him being raised from the grave and given eternal life. So the resurrection of Jesus therefore lies at the very heart of the gospel and therein lies our hope. Well, Paul again, writing to the believers in Philippi, states in chapter 3, that our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. Jesus, as we have seen this evening, came to fulfil the promise of God with Abraham and to establish God's kingdom. From our earlier look at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, to achieve this, sin and death had to be destroyed. And for this reason, Jesus was obedient to his Father's will and offered himself as the perfect sacrifice, that through him we might be reconciled to God. For Jesus, having gained the victory over sin, God then raised him from the dead to sit at his right hand. And when Jesus comes again, he will raise from the dead all those who have died in faith and give them a strong, immortal body like his own. Even though we have inherited the sinful nature of Adam and break God's laws and therefore deserve nothing but death, Jesus' death, the offering of his sinless self in sacrifice, has broken the power of the grave for all who join themselves to him. The act of baptism, the symbolic washing away in water of our old life, allows us to start again as if we are newly born and become members of God's holy people. As such, we become sons and daughters of God and heirs of those promises of the kingdom of God. All that Jesus inherits, the lamb, the throne, the blessing, all will be ours. And this prospect is 
very exciting. It's as if we are being introduced already to the new covenant that God will make with his people. For with God's law written in our heart, having our sins washed away, we are enrolled for a place in that age when war and famine, sin and sorrow will be banished forever from the earth. Tonight, I hope you've been able to see that God's promises provide a basis for living and will in the not too distant future be fulfilled. Learning to trust in these promises of God is both simple and profound. The process is not difficult to understand, but in the midst of the pressures of daily life, making the right choice can be challenging. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 3 and verses 5 and 6, we are told to trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. If we meditate on these words, its truth will guide our thoughts, will guide our life. It will guide our decision-making on a daily basis. When Jesus came the first time, the majority of the Jews refused to accept his gospel, the good news of the kingdom age to come. Paul, in writing to the Romans, again in chapter 11, verse 25, provides the reason for this when he says, I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceit, that blindness in part has happened to Israel. But this hardness of Israel will not last forever. But Paul continues by saying that it will only last until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, and so all Israel shall be saved. And we have to take notice of the time period when the full number of the Gentiles has come in. This time period has not come in yet. God is still calling and the door is still open. We have the same choice, whether to accept the gospel or not, to come and enter into his family. But soon, Sooner than we may think, that door will be shut. The Lord Jesus will be here with power to rule over the nations and bring men to judgment for despising God's laws. God has offered you the invitation. Will you accept it? We hope you will and not let God's promise of this marvellous future slip away. Thank you.